0: Reading now from the Gospel according to Luke. Jesus himself stood among the disciples and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it. And ate in their presence. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses to these things. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I sent a text message a few weeks ago to someone informing her of the change of plans and the Rationale I had behind it. I hope that the reply would be some shorthand version of, that's a relief, I'm grateful for your wisdom, this really helps me out, you're amazing. (laughs) The text back said, I understand. Which left room for some misunderstanding. Did that simply mean that the communication has been successfully transmitted? Or was there an undertone of disappointment? And most importantly, did my responder get interrupted before she had the chance to write, You're amazing. (laughs) We're learning in this digital age that emails and texts and Blogs and posts may or may not carry tones with them. We might be reading too much into them, or we might not. It's hard to tell. Back when people used to talk over a telephone, you could hear the humor in the voice, if intended. When we find ourselves actually talking with another person in person, looking at her face and not a static, tiny photo of her, we get much fuller communication. The problem with Scripture... Printed and bound the way we have it is that like a text message, we have to discern the tone. There's an art to reading scripture that requires more of us than knowing the definition of words. Like today, we have this scene where Jesus is back among his disciples just days after being crucified. And he asks two questions of them that could be taken as quite ridiculous. Why are you frightened and why do you have doubts in your hearts? Seriously, Jesus, you just appeared after being killed and you're wondering why we are frightened. Our grief is heavy and your return seemed impossible and you're curious that we have a little doubt. Unless we're putting too much edge to Jesus' tone. Maybe the way a parent asks a child who is crying after being startled why the child is crying, when clearly the answer is that loud noise I just heard. Jesus' tone is, oh buddies, why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? As if to say, I'm here with you. I'm always going to be, and nothing will change that. If that's the tone, then Jesus, if that's the message, Jesus' tone, his questions aren't ridiculous after all. They're, they're questions that send a message. Less, what are you thinking, and more, what are you thinking? You have questions that sometimes carry tones and sometimes do not. Sometimes you ask questions because you're trying to make a point, And sometimes you ask questions because you're trying to gather some information. We think today about the resurrection. What questions would you ask if, say, someone who had been resurrected came and appeared among us and was willing to go through a question and answer period with you? Let's say Jesus materialized through the roof and came and hovered among us and offered to answer your questions. What would you ask? You in the back, Jesus might say. Yes, the one who for some reason has chosen to tie a a colorful strangling cloth around your neck. What would you like to ask? First of all, it's an honor to speak with you, Mr. Jesus. I love your work. My question is, where were you when you were in the tomb? I was in the tomb. It's implied in your question. How tight is that thing around your neck? Next question. A follow-up, sir, please. When they got to the tomb, it was empty. Where were you then? Not in the tomb. Can someone listen to that thing for him? Clearly, what you're trying to ask is where was I between the crucifixion and the resurrection? Next question. The lady on the right who somehow was allowed in here without a hat. Didn't they read Paul's letters to you? Go ahead. Yes, Jesus, this is so exciting. Thank you for taking my question. Are you a ghost? No, ma'am. But sir, you came through the ceiling and you're floating here among us. And I read that, that you went through locked doors back in Bible times. And how does it all work? Do you have a fish? You've read about those Bible times. You know that I like to eat fish when I reappear. That's supposed to point out to you, by the way, that I am not a ghost. But as to how it all works, does that really matter? Are you trying to reappear to your friends after you've died? I mean, for all the things that I did that you might try to do, is reappearing to your friends after your death really the one that you want to try to emulate? Don't you think you might be asking the wrong questions? Let me tell you a little bit about God that might not explain how the resurrection works, but might help you understand a little bit more of what the resurrection means. And then Jesus would, as he did for the disciples, open our minds to understand the scriptures. Which, like so much of what Jesus did, is more than I can promise. Particularly when I have no idea which of the scriptures he selected. But here's an attempt. God created the world. And it was good. However, God did it, however long those days were, this world is intricately woven together such that insects both annoy and pollinate, and flowers and plants and trees provide beauty and food and shade and even hold the soil in their place. They collect water and clean the air and cool things down, making it possible for those bigger animals to thrive. And part of our thriving, we were made very good, you know, is that unlike a dent in your car that requires some external force to be repaired, most of the dents and scratches in our lives will over time heal. Even the ones we can't see, the deeper ones often by God's grace get restored. God made the world good and this crowning achievement was that God gave humans one another as partners in this thing called life. And that went well. Until those same humans were told that they could not have something that looked good to them. And with the slightest of nudging were able to convince themselves that they would not be inconvenienced even by one restriction. So they took and ate the forbidden fruit even though they had been warned that if they did that they would die. Now obviously... God, who had enjoyed wandering around the garden with them, talking with them as though they were his own children, was distraught by this. The way a parent is distraught when a child makes a choice that endangers his life and relationships. So they were expelled from the garden of ease. But God, who loved them, was unwilling to expel them from him. He followed them from the garden as they began to make their way. Their way was filled with fits and starts, mostly fits, leading to a wickedness that needed cleansing. God was frustrated enough to wash the whole world clean and start over, but God's love would not let him. So Noah and his family and two of every creature were preserved and things continued. God entered into a covenant with Abraham, and he and his descendants began to prosper, but also struggle. One, Joseph was so mistreated by his own brothers that he ended up being a slave in Egypt, which should have been the end of his story, except that God never left him. Before long, Joseph was number two in Egypt, and his family and his people were saved from starvation. Things were good for them until a pharaoh either did not know or more likely did not want to remember how highly regarded Joseph the Israelite had been in Egypt and enslaved Joseph's descendants. That might have been the end of them, but God heard their cries and sent Moses to free them. And those people who, after 400 years of slavery, took about two days... To wonder if the stress of change was not worse than being slaves to harsh Pharaoh. But God was there. There to hear their griping. There to provide them with food and drink. There to lead them forward. When they finally made their way to a fertile land, a long saga of obedience to God followed by disobedience and more disobedience and then a reckoning followed by obedience and then disobedience and more disobedience and then another reckoning and so on. A cycle that would make any parent pull out his hair. But clearly God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love because every photograph we have of God shows him with long thick hair and a beard. God's people didn't always listen well, so God began speaking through prophets. The more they spoke, the more obvious it became that God has expectations for how we treat one another, most especially the weaker and most vulnerable of his children, and that God is not pleased when we mess that up. God is aware. Concerned for those mistreated and about those who mistreat. The scriptures reveal that God is continuously present. That God desires a relationship. That God is even willing to enter into our lives to bring peace and wholeness to and through them. So that even when we are disobedient. God will not give up on us. Our disobedience will lead to troubles, but never to abandonment. And if we ever doubted that, then God offered as proof His willingness to be born in our flesh, walk in our dust, care for our bodies, minds, and souls, and if that wasn't enough, to die for our sake. But if the story is that God will not abandon us, then the story must also be that God will not abandon life, including his own, so that while his death was temporary, his resurrection is eternal. So the questions of what happened between those hours of crucifixion and resurrection, the questions of when the exact moment of resurrection occurred. The questions of how it all works are great curiosities, things to contemplate, even to theorize about, but not nearly as important as the why. No, Jesus, hovering or not, is not a ghost, because a ghost comes to frighten or warn or annoy Resurrected Jesus is a Savior and a Lord and a friend who instead comes because, as the Scriptures show time and time again, God was unwilling to abandon us, and therefore we have confidence that God is unwilling to abandon us. And that, my friends, is the tone of the text. Thanks be to God. Amen.